This is an ABC podcast. If not at 70% and 80%, then when? Would Australia be closer to reopening if the Prime Minister had not failed his two jobs on vaccine and quarantine? Unfortunately, in the background, actions are still proving that they don't get it. Nobody is telling us exactly what's involved in the plan. Australia seems to have left it far too late to help those who helped us. I've had a gutful. I have had an absolute gutful. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvalis from RM Breakfast, joining you from Wurundjeri Country. And I'm Frank Kelly on Gadigal Land for the Aora Nation. And our guest this morning is ABC business editor Ian Verinder, which is exciting because he's never joined us at the party before, so I'm looking forward to that. We are now less than two weeks away from the federal budget, so focus is well and truly shifting to the economy and Ian's going to help us understand some of the pressures building on you, of course, primarily, and therefore on the government in the lead up to the election. The budget is less than two weeks away and perhaps more importantly, the election is almost certainly less than two months away. And that explains Scott Morrison's whistle-stop tour to the West this week, kicking off in Perth because he can finally get into Perth after an enormous period of time because of the COVID border closures. And he came armed with big spending promises and plenty of praise for the exceedingly popular WA Labor Premier. Federal Labor under Anthony Albanese is not the same as state Labor under Mark McGowan. They're two very different animals. And uh, we've worked very closely with Mark McGowan here in, in Western Australia to deliver and support Uh, the path he has been on and to ensure that the economic dividend, especially in our resources sector, can continue to be realised. Ah, we love Mark McGowan. (laughs) He's the best thing ever. There's just no room for subtlety at the moment, is there? There's no no time, PK. A popular Premier has to be a friend, even if he is a Labor Premier and even if he has been in some pretty fierce contest with you and your government over the pandemic. Oh, look, you know, we we had a hint of this when the Prime Minister pretty much abandoned any criticism of the hard border towards the end as he realised he'd sort of lost that debate and Mark McGowan made his decision about delaying the reopening. Well, now it's open. PM can make his way back into WA to try and campaign. And he lost no time racing to WA, right, Uh, because there are some significant seats at play there. Just to give you the context, so the Liberals are actually defending 10 of WA's 15 federal seat. So they they actually um, stand to lose a lot if they cannot defend their own seats. So just think about that. That's that's 10. The idea that they can retain all 10, I would say at this stage, if you look at the polling and you look at the sort of um, uh, sentiment in the community, is pretty unlikely. Just say they lose five of those, just five, right? Which is not just, but you know what I mean, five. That's a lot. That's a lot. I don't think they'll lose five. I'm not telling you on this podcast they'll lose five because I'm not crazy. But what I am saying is that if they did, they could lose government. Like WA is high stakes is what I'm saying. I will tell you one thing. The federal Liberals, according to new polling, um, it's Green's internal polling that's been published um, in a newspaper, but they've reported that that they face really catastrophic swings away from their party, which which mean that they could actually lose significant numbers of seats. Now, the point is the PM needs to, yes, be Mark McGowan's friend. He needs to 
product differentiate, which is what he's trying to do, WA Labor from Anthony Albanese's brand of Labor. That's what he wants to do. But Anthony Albanese, he's already been there. He's already been doing some of that work. He got there straight away because the PM was still in isolation and Anthony Albanese did not wait. And he has been uh, working on this for a while. And Mark McGowan is definitely going to be a friend to the Albanese opposition. Yeah, that's true. In fact, there's some Liberals over there who, you know, refer to the challenge of, of winning back the, what they dubbed the McGowan Liberals. And, um, you know, that job's going to be much harder this time. Last time around, Labor thought it was going to win three seats in the West. It won none. It won none of those seats. And that was sort of part two of Scott Morrison's miracle, really. It um, was, but that was such a different time. And the issues were so different. I mean, we had Bill Shorten with a, with a bunch of economic reforms, which really bamboozled the electorate and were found by the Labor Review to be overwhelming. There's none of that this time. There's none of that. So the, the, it, the context is quite different. Well, the context is primarily different, I think, because the um, the status of the state Liberal Party is so, you know, diabolical. I think they only won two seats at the last election and a state machine that only has two MPs in Parliament, that means they're really down on their help to, on their capacity to help the federal machine and the federal candidates around election time campaigning. This on the ground, this counts. And I think that's going to, you know, that's, that might make it all just a bridge too far for for the coalition. Mm, A bridge absolutely (laughs) too far. But PK, as the election draws nearer and the polls turn down for the government, things are starting to get personal. I'm not pretending to be anyone else. We're still wearing the same glasses. um, (laughs) Sadly, the same suits. Um, And I... (laughs) And I weigh about the same. And I don't mind a bit of Italian cake either. Um, So I'm happy in my own skin. I'm not pretending to be anyone else. All right. Well, that, as you could hear, was the Prime Minister on a Sky News live event, very live there on the Central Coast earlier in the week. He didn't actually mention Anthony Albanese by name, PK, but it was clear that's who he was sending up. The tagline was, I'm the authentic one. He's the pretender. He's the imposter. And that's one of the coalition's line of attacks against Anthony Albanese, that he's masquerading his actual left-wing self and pretending to be somebody he's not. He's a fake and a phony. You can't trust him. I'm the real deal. Is that what's going on here? Yeah, that's exactly what he's trying to do, although I thought that was absolutely tone deaf. I mean, he was trying to sort of suggest that Anthony Albanese with his, you know, makeover, and he has had a little bit of a makeover for sure, but that's what leaders always do. Prime ministers do it. Uh, Opposition leaders, uh, they go through periods where they try to become fitter. Or It's just, in, in some ways, actually, I thought the issue with the PM is that he was trying to very, very blatantly and nakedly, actually, appeal to your every everyday Australian man, mm. you know, I'm I'm not afraid of cake, like I'm a real bloke, yeah. you know, right? But what he missed is that everyday Australian men also try and, you know, clean up their diet and try and be a bit more and fit women. and try and get up. Yeah, we sorry, all but do I'm, it, right? Absolutely. But, but no, but he was being really blokey. Yeah. No, I thought there was a real gendered element to that. I really did. That's yeah. why I'm being specific. You're right. We all do it. I mean, I, and I go through, you know, phases where I try and be fitter and, and then you kind of like, you know, fall off a bit and you're like, oh, oh no, you know, no wine during the nights. You know, you know, all that. That is a classic Australian experience. So in trying to make out that um, Anthony Albanese is some sort of phony for this, I think it blew up in his face a little bit. But it also, getting outside of that, because I think what Anthony Albanese has done is pretty, pretty normal stuff, right? Like try to get fit 
needs to be match fit for an election, good on him. We all know that if your health is better, you're able to perform better. It's well, the truth is proven. he's dropped a lot of weight, and you know that that could be a discussion you have in a, in a health context. You know, given that we're all talking about heart disease at the moment, you know he has dropped a lot of weight, and it's very noticeable. And so that means you get new suits, right? Because the old ones don't fit. Yeah, <laughs> and if you wear them, um, the old ones you, you look a bit silly. So good idea to wear new suits, but broadly it's about making it out like he's a pretender I, mm. and that's that's the bigger thing yeah that he's that he's just a fake and a phony i don't think that that's actually very i don't think it's working to make it out like he's a fake and a phony he has been in public life for a really long time he hasn't radically um changed all his views in fact this kind of um centrist uh, um positioning from anthony albanese have, was consistent even before he became opposition leader to be honest even inside yeah. the front bench with um uh, bill shorten he was often arguing these points so the point is the prime minister this is the really big point he seems like he's a bit rattled um, to be saying these things. Yeah, trying too hard, trying too hard. And that's a sort of dead giveaway, isn't it, for a leader? And and why wouldn't he be rattled? The polls are very bad at the moment. I mean, the polls is a whole nother podcast. We might do that one. Um, but, you know, at the moment, Labor's got the coalition on the run, haven't they? Big time, right? And the government is really nervous. The really interesting um, news poll result, which showed Anthony Albanese is neck and neck with the Prime Minister now on, on that um, on that personal rating, I just thought was really interesting. Now, that one is not definitive, can I say. It's a two-party preferred you should look at. But it just shows that there is a genuine um, problem for the Prime Minister. The government knows it. And so, you know, we're now in a really concerted political phase where other things are going on at the minor level. So we talk macro here, mm -hmm. I think. But if you look down at the seats, Fran, at the moment, you're seeing a sort of seat-by-seat seat micro campaign going on. And this week, something really interesting happened where we essentially saw a story in the nine papers, right? You, you take it away. It's a story in the nine papers yeah. Look, in relation to pork barrelling. Yeah. And, and, you know, come election time, there's always a lot of talk about pork. For, you know, most of this term in Parliament, the coalition has been really under pressure, in fact, under cr criticism from the Auditor General for politicised spending of grants programs, aka sports rorts, car parks rorts, you know, colour-coded spreadsheets signalling which coalition held seats should get first pick of the money, that kind of thing. It was an actual scandal, I think, knocked off the front pages, uh, which was lucky for the government by COVID, essentially. Labor, though, kept pushing it, kept accusing the government of rorts and rip-offs. Now, the government is turning the tables on Labor after this story in the nine newspapers. Simon Birmingham, the finance minister, accusing the opposition of rank hypocrisy when he went on your show this week. Anthony Albanese has been lying to you and to everybody else when he said he would take a different approach. He's been lying when he said Labor would not carve up grants uh, in relation to any different ways. And it's a hypocritical approach that they've now been exposed for. And what he's referring to there is this $750 million in spending promises that Labor MPs have been out and about spruiking in their local seats. The seats, uh, according to the analysis done so far by the nine papers, uh, primarily seats that uh, are Labor marginals they need to hold or potential Liberal seats for them to win. Now, you know, Labor says, well, hang on, let's look at the numbers and there's still a lot of spending to go here and they question that. But you had the shadow finance minister to Katie Gallagher, really in the hot seat this week, and she came up cold. Can you name a single safe coalition seat that has received a funding promise from Labor? 
Uh, I don't have the breakdown of all of the projects in front of me, um, Patricia, but I do. I can tell you that the vast majority of our projects are projects and commitments that go right across the country. Okay, so I can London to a brick. Katie Gallagher will have the breakdown of spending programs in the days and weeks ahead. But PK, the question is: Is Labor doing exactly what it's been accusing the government of doing over the last two years, rotting the system, or is this ordinary? old garden variety pork barrelling and why would we be surprised at that? Okay, a couple of points on this. One thing is that um, Labor argues that the difference is that if they were to be elected, that there would be a process. So I, I think I had, was it, was it, anyway, it was one of one of the com- commentators, I can't remember which one, um, said it's like an asterisk next to Labor's um, um, promise. You know, we will take it through the process. So it's mm. like reversing the process. Okay, that might be a difference. Okay, let's let's give them that, um, because I am going to focus on the word. Are they doing exactly that part mm. of the question you asked me? Is it exactly? Well, these are the differences. The other one is Tony Burke. I think was saying we never said we weren't going to, you know, make promises in the election. We're not against that. Okay, you do make promises in elections, but the point is, when I asked that question, and a lot of people were critical about that interview, saying the government's been, you know, found uh, to be pork barrelling. Patricia, it's not fair to focus on this. Well, actually, pork barrelling whatever side of politics it comes from, even from opposition promises of it, need to be scrutinised equally. It's it's something that I think is a problem in our system. All citizens deserve equal services and treatment. And the point of pork barrelling is it's about a focus on marginal electorates so people can win elections. Mm. And we think that is a problem because it distorts our democracy, just to be clear. So, yes, there are some differences, but fundamentally I think this is a case of Labor fighting fire with fire. I mean, we didn't see this approach at the last election it was that more macro, big policy approach reform. I think Labor learnt some lessons from that. I mean, it wasn't, it didn't end up being popular. They didn't win the election. They're making some of those more minor um, promises. Uh, but if you can't even name a, a Liberal electorate where that's been promised any of these electorates yet, okay, there might be some in the future, uh, whatever you think, people who live in Liberal seats deserve, you know, projects too, uh, just like people who lived in Labor seats deserved them when the government was um, skewing them away from them. It's just ultimately a case of fairness and you need to be fair. And I think the government, I mean, sorry, the opposition looks a bit... Well, looks to be, you know, a bit hypocritical here. A bit a bit tawdry. But, look, I think we need to sort of get some perspective back here too, not to give either side a break for pork barrelling, but for elections for all time have delivered promises and most of those promises delivered trying to get win seats. That's how it works. The party that wins the most seats, you know, gets government. So there, even at the last election when Labor had all those big headlines, there would have been smaller local promises being made. That's how it works. The issue to me is not so much where the promises are made, but it's when the rubber hits the road and the grants are being handed out that the processes, proper processes, are put in place for scrutinising these projects. So some, you know, dumb project that's that's bad, bad use of money, not needed, does not get through the processes. Labor says they're going to have that in place with the Department of Infrastructure. Is that good enough? I'm not sure that it is because I think we've seen with the government's sports rules, for instance, that, you know, depart under the law, under the rules, departmental recommendations can be overruled by the minister. So I think, you know, there needs to be tighter scrutiny. There needs to be tighter and 
and completely transparent and accountable guidelines. And if those things are put in place, well, then I don't see a problem with election promises. It's more about the sort of the way the money is is overseen and scrutinised when it's handed out. That's how I see it. Inter- look, I, I don't like pork barrelling full stop. And, and yes, you know, people want to win elections, but ultimately, you know, the, the old yeah, thing... Yeah, but if, but if, but if, a, if an electorate needs a hockey field, that's not necessarily... A no, pork absolutely barrel, not. But but you know, I'm sure. I don't know. I'm, I haven't looked it up, but I'm sure there's liberal electorates or labor electorates that also need them. The problem oh, yeah, is, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you don't disagree with this, Fran, because I know we hang out. I know that you think that too. But my point is, ultimately, we always see it that they keep not getting them. <laughs> then I keep I mean, not getting them if I they're thought, unwinnable for the other side. I thought the coalition's community sports grants program was a great idea because there are a whole lot, it had a focus on regional sports facilities, which we know a lot of, you know, country areas don't have the same facilities that and the, the pools and the sporting grounds that the cities do. Um, it also had an emphasis, it was supposed to have an emphasis on women's sporting facilities. And we know that's a real issue at a lot of sporting clubs. There's not even change rooms really for women. They have to get changed in the toilets, things like that. I thought that was a terrific idea, but the problem was in the implementation. Execution. Somehow yeah. or other, a North Sydney elector, I think it was, got a swimming pool under the regional grants program. How does that happen? Yeah, yeah. And look, when I put uh, these criticisms to Katie Gallagher, the Shadow Finance Minister for Labor, about, you know, are they pork barrelling too? One of the things she said, which I do think is a, is an important point, is well, we also believe in a national integrity commission, which we will implement, i.e., you know, read between the lines, firstly criticising the government for not implementing theirs or not doing anything on that, which they didn't in this term of government, but also making the point, really, that they will be scrutinised, right? That that will be the overarching um, uh, body that will be able to make sure that they, they aren't dodgy uh, and they don't um, do things that we don't consider appropriate. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's, you know, another point. And PK, just one other event we really should mention, I think, this week of political importance, which is South Australians go to the polls on Saturday. Um, the polls are indicating that the first term Liberal government, the Marshall government, um, could actually lose, which would be a headline in itself, you know, a first term government losing and a Labor government returning, which only been out of office for four years out of the last 20 years. That would be quite something. But I think the the significance of this too, if the Marshall government does lose, it would be Steve Marshall would be the first pandemic premier to lose his seat, you know, during the time of COVID. So is that a changing of the instincts of the electorate here? And does that sort of have any kind of warnings, flashing lights in it for Scott Morrison? You know, if, if a pandemic premier can lose his seat, what, where does that leave a pandemic prime minister? The pandemic prime minister uh, will be nervous uh, and he'll be watching it closely. But yes, you will hear if it does happen and Labor is swept back into power um, and we find that out Saturday night, Sunday morning, then you will hear the Prime Minister say, you can't read in too many, uh, too many um, you know, implications from state polls. So there you go. That'll be the line. But Fran, we've got a budget coming up, as you mentioned, in two weeks, and that's going to have huge implications, of course, for the federal election. Should we bring in our guest? Let's do it. <laughs> Ian Verinder, business editor for the ABC. Welcome to the party room. Good morning. How are you going? 
We're going very well and we're thrilled to have you with us. Thank you so much for joining us because obviously just a couple of weeks away from the budget and the talk is turning to the economy. But, but Ian, I have to say I've covered a lot of federal budgets. A lot of them are dubbed cost of living budgets. There's, you know, they're often sold that way. But this time around, cost of living is rising. Everyone can see it. At the Bowser, you can see it writ large. If you go and buy your fruit and veggies, it's, you know, the, the price rises are really something. Manufactured good, getting your parcels delivered, everything's gone up. How tough is it for households right now? Is it possible to make some kind of comparison? Uh, well, Fran, we're seeing an outbreak of inflation, the likes of which we really haven't seen since the 1970s. And, you know, there's a lot of people who have never been in this kind of environment. And certainly there's a lot of people in government who have never seen this kind of environment. And, you know, you've got to say that while it's always an election issue, the cost of living, the ability for governments to actually do anything about the cost of living is extraordinarily limited. Um, you know, I mean, governments like to give out the idea that they actually control the economy. And to a certain degree, they once did. Um, they don't anymore because they've handed over the, the real reins of economic management to mainly central banks, so mm -hmm. the Reserve Bank of Australia. And the other big tool that they used to have was the exchange rate, and they've let the market uh, run that. So, And then for the past 30 years, the whole mantra has been, well, you know, it's best for governments to actually get out of the economy, to not manage it at all. Uh, you know, no, no uh, cut back on, on tax and cut back on spending. So the ability to actually do anything about the cost of living is extraordinarily limited. Before we go any further, Ian, I need you to give us a kind of 101, you know, dummies guide, please. For me, I'm not calling my, the listeners <laughs> of this podcast dummies, me, because Finance Minister Simon Birmingham says the budget needs to ease people's cost of living pressures, right, as we were saying. But importantly, he says the budget can't add more pressure to increase inflation. So, Ian, what is inflation and why why is it so bad? What are the implications of inflation and how would, if the, the budget was a spendathon, how would it put pressure on it? Yeah, look, that's it's a really good question and there's, there's no real easy answer to it. Inflation can be bad, but a lack of it can be equally as bad. So you want to get that Goldilocks kind of... Uh, formula, I guess, for inflation. You want prices to be rising just a little bit, but not too much. So, uh, you know, the Reserve Bank has a target. It tries to get inflation in between 2 to 3% on a, on a longer-term basis. And, you know, for the past five or six years, it's failed miserably to get it there. Inflation has been well below that target, uh, and that means wages haven't been rising as a result. We've seen a lot of pain actually coursing through the economy because it, it our economy hasn't been growing fast enough to get inflation rising. And so there's been a lot of criticism on the Reserve Bank that it hasn't done enough to get inflation actually into gear. Mm -hmm. And now suddenly we're faced with the opposite problem. We're suddenly faced with the whole idea that inflation could get completely out of control and that could be really, really painful and really difficult to try and to rein in. So instead of getting it in that sweet spot between 2 and 3%, 
Uh, I mean, you're, you're looking at America at the moment, up around 7% at four, you know, highest level in 40 years. But that's interesting to look at America because, yes, their inflation is rising and the Prime Minister and the, the Treasurer are making much of the fact that um, we, I think that they would have us believe we are in the Goldilocks spot at the moment compared to overseas economies. And now we've just seen the US um, Fed raise interest rates in a bid to try and curb the sort of spiralling inflation. So why is it that other countries inflation is rising and 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 if the US is right, is putting up interest rates does that signify we're getting much closer to the reserve bank doing the same here which will be make a lot of people very nervous yeah, look, absolutely. There's no doubt that we're going to see interest rate rises and we will see them this year. I mean, up, up until a few weeks ago, in fact, the Reserve Bank was sticking to the line that we wouldn't see rate hikes until 2024. It's now changed its uh, its its tune and essentially saying we'll probably see them before the year is out. Um, but look, interest rates are already rising because banks borrow their money on commercial markets and those commercial markets have priced in rate hikes anyway. They're, they're, money is now more expensive than it was six months ago. And remember all those uh, cheap five-year loans you could get, uh, you know, midway through last year, you know, at well under mm -hmm. 2%. Well, they've all, they've all disappeared. So, the rate hikes have actually already already started. And central banks, including the Reserve Bank, have been pretty slow to come to the party to try and... Uh, so, they're actually acting behind the uh, inflationary trend or the interest rate trend at the moment. And the other big question, of course, is, you know, back to the prices of things that have been going up. Obviously, the biggest one is uh, is fuel, right? Anyone, most of our listeners would probably have a car. Some people don't, but anyone who's gone to a petrol station knows exactly how expensive fuel is right now. So I, don't I have paid to tell $2.43 a litre the other week. I'm still traumatised. Yeah. Unbelievable. By, yeah. I put three quarters of a tank in and it cost me 120 bucks yeah. or something the other day. Yeah. 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 It is. It is. Look, I mean, you know, I also just full ownership of this, um, you know, first world problems because look what's happening in the world at the moment. So I just want to own, for, for me at least, well, I don't know for, for me, other people. But yeah, but not for but some people. It's yeah, Exactly. It says a lot, though, that this is really, really hitting people very hard. There's a lot of talk now, Ian, about cutting the fuel excise. We've seen three premiers call for it. Um, you know, just give you an example, a Liberal premier who's facing an election. South Australia's Stephen Marshall, for instance, um, calling for a cut to the fuel excise. Also some Nationals backbenchers. Look, Ian, you know, do you think the government's going to go there? Because I think John Howard did it, didn't he? And, and you know, what, what you take off, you've got to put back on eventually. Yeah. Look, John Howard, um, he, he took off the, the rider that, that allowed the fuel excise to continue rising as, as prices essentially rose. Um, so he stabilised the fuel excise. Uh, and it still can rise, I think, but it's, it's, the rises have nowhere near, been nowhere near as dramatic since, since Howard put the brakes on it. It's currently sitting at around about 44 cents a litre, I think it is. But, you know, that is not a long-term solution to actually trying to get fuel prices lower. Um, and it's really beyond the control of, of uh, Australian governments mm. in particular uh, because, you know, what's what's happening at the moment is, is 
driven by global factors. The fact that, that Russia invaded Ukraine, the fact that there no one's buying Russian oil and Russia supplies 10% of the market, that is one of the big factors at the moment. And, uh, you know, you, there's nothing we can do to, to, to alleviate that. So what can the government do then to deliver on its promise to help relieve people's cost of living pressures? If, they, if, they, if you don't think they'll cut excise and that's not going to really do much anyway because it gets eaten up pretty quickly, uh, the Treasurer said they're not going to bring forward the stage three tax cuts. What do you think they can do when they say they're going to have targeted measures? What do you think they'll look at? Um, they'll do a bit of a cash splash and they'll talk about it a lot, but um, they'll talk about the, the cost of living. But what can you do? Uh, there is nothing that you can do. The government doesn't really dictate, uh, you know, price movements, it can't bring down the, the cost of groceries, it can't bring down the cost of oil, it can't bring down the cost of the fundamental things that go into groceries, like the price of wheat. And if you do that, if you try and impose price limits on those ingredients, um, well, you'd have very angry farmers who are looking at uh, getting windfall profits for their wheat this year. You'd have very angry producers of uh, Australian oil and gas and coal who are trying to you know, make as much money as possible, it, it, it's all lip service for the electorate uh, to, to essentially show that, uh, look, we, we understand your pain and we really care, but no one's going to admit that they can't really do anything about it. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's that's right. And you can't look like you don't care, actually, because people are feeling really, really disgruntled. And of course, there are political ramifications for the Prime Minister. If people are feeling disgruntled, they may look at his government and, you know, want to blame someone, right? So you mentioned cash splash. But at the same time, we're hearing, I mean, I spoke to the finance minister, Simon Birmingham. He's also said that that because the budget is in significant debt, partially because of all that COVID spending, it's not like there's lots of extra cash that can be splashed around. Is he right? Ian? I mean, he is right. It's a fact. The budget is in massive deficit. But equally, um, they've got to make people feel like they're listening and that they're helping. Yeah, well, see, this is the other problem they face because we're now, as you mentioned, we've got the Reserve Bank looking at uh, raising rates this year and you really should have the government and the central bank in lockstep. Right, so the Reserve Bank is looking at raising rates to try and rein in inflation. You need to have a government that's working with them to essentially cut back on spending and essentially keep taxes high. So when you start cutting taxes and you start spending more money, that is expansionary fiscal policy and that adds to inflation. But we're in an election campaign here and there is no way that a, that a government that's you know in the kind of strife that uh, they're in within the electorate is going to say, look, we need to repair the budget. So we're going to hike your taxes and we're going to cut back on spending. <laughs> Does the government ever get out of jail free card here, though, in things like the iron ore price, which is at record highs? So that's money that comes in there in the form of, you know, resource taxes and things to the government. More people in work than we've had in decades, which means more tax receipts. There is sort of extra cash coming around. Do you think they could use that for the cash splash and still appear to be doing something to have a plan to lower the cop this number, $98.9 billion forecast deficit. Yeah, I know. I mean, look, you know, there's no, there's a reason why we're called the lucky country, I guess, because it seems that no matter what 
you know, catastrophe uh, takes place around the world. Somehow or other, we seem to sail through it. And, you know, look, iron ore prices just overnight shot up another 7.5%. They are way above. They're sitting at about 145 US dollars a tonne at the moment. Now, the government has penciled into the budget, I think it's 55 or $60 a tonne, right, for iron ore prices. Mm. So anything above that delivers them windfall tax gains. We've got, um, you know, we are a massive exporter of gas. We're the world's second biggest gas exporter. So, and we, we export a lot of coal. So we are, you know, hugely tied into energy exports and energy prices are shooting the lights out. So all of these things do certainly add to the government uh, tax take. And there's no doubt that that is hugely beneficial to the nation. Add into that that we've got a much lower unemployment rate than we were banking on, you know, down to around almost 4% at the moment. And there's every likelihood it could go under 4% in the next little while. So that means a lot less money being spent on social security. So there there are certain factors there that are playing out extraordinarily favourably for Australia at the moment and for the government too when it comes to, uh, uh, you know, the, the budget. But, you know, you've still got that hip pocket issue, people mm. are feeling the pain. So on a, on a kind of national balance sheet level, we're looking pretty good, you know, like, well, much better than we could be, than we ordinarily would be. But on an individual hip pocket level, things are still very tough. Yeah. And, and I suppose this is the conundrum for the government. How much can the government spend um, in a spendathon because it's an election and people are feeling that pressure, like we were saying, but still claim to be responsible economic managers and embark on what they say they're going to start doing. I mean, Josh Frydenberg, the Treasurer, has said it, which is budget repair. Yeah. Look, it gets down to a lot of spin, though, really. I mean, if you want to talk about, you know, what Conservative governments, and not just here but around the world, what they supposedly stand for, which is, you know, the government getting out of the economy, you know, taxing low taxes, low spending. Well, if you look at our spending at the moment, the government, over the first eight years of its life, its average spending was 26.5% of GDP. And it's forecast to rise to 27% in the next two years. That was according to the budget last year. Now, when the previous government, the Gillard and Rudd governments were in, they averaged 24.5%. So, you know, from 245 to 27%. But they were the debt and deficit disaster party, according to the coalition. That's that's right. Back then, you know, my, how things, how times change. Uh, And, you know, and that, that debt and deficit disaster back then was doubled before the pandemic hit, right? So the, the, they, the government never once delivered on its promise to uh, bring in a surplus and the debt doubled between, um, you know, the, the, the coalition being elected and to, to just prior to the uh, pandemic hitting. And of course, since then, the debt has just blown out enormously. And, uh, you know, and we're looking at, you know, huge spending increases over the next few years because we're, we're going into an era of Cold War. So that means a lot more spending on mm, defence. Mm. We've got expenditure on climate change and, you know, there's a whole lot of houses that we've just seen now can't be insured. There is all sorts of weather events that are going to take place that are going to require a lot more government expenditure. And, of course, aged care as well, which requires an enormous amount of money being spent. So how do you do all that and maintain the facade that you're a small taxing, small spending government? Yeah, especially when I think we've all sort of kind of got to like the idea of government handing out cash. We've kind of liked that through the pandemic. Ian, it's been fantastic to have your, uh, the benefit of your analysis here and I can't wait for your budget night analysis. Thank you so much for joining us.
Fran, PK, pleasure. Thanks, Ian. Questions without notice. The Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and, and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. And we've got a question from Yvette Poshoglian. Um, I hope I pronounced that correctly, Yvette, but the question is this. How much store should we hold in polls given last time around? Mm, that's that a good not. question. Well, I mean, last time around the polls were spectacularly incorrect, right? And... Um, they were clearly showing a Labor win. And if you spoke to Labor politicians, um, as I did on election day, Labor politicians thought they were going to win too. So clearly their internal polling was showing something similar. In most cases, perhaps not up in Queensland, Libs too, their polling was showing, you know, it would be a miracle, take a miracle for them to win. And hey, look what happened. So there is a lot of kind of leeriness about the polls. And I think all of us are, are, are a bit more reticent about basing too much on them. But having said that, PK, um, they will come into play, I think, in election time because they are some kind of test of the temperature of the electorate. And a lot of the big polling companies have tried to change the way they weight the polls, the questions they ask to, you know, try and make it more representative of those people who who are being questioned and just having a a slightly more open-ended question, I think. So I don't know if they're more reliable, but I'm pretty sure they'll still be relied upon during election analysis. What do you think? Well, if you look at already the reporting around news poll, um, I feel like we've, we've, again, we're focusing on news polls. So there was a period of kind of let's not look at that, but there has again been um, a reliance or or a sort of analysis of the polling. I think this will be a good test, actually, to see uh, whatever is, you know, in that that famous Saturday morning news poll that's published uh, as the splash of the Australian newspaper. Let's see whether that ends up being accurate to the result this time. I will be fascinated to see that, actually. The thing is, the, the parties do their own internal polling, and more and more I think they're doing, you know, very pinpointed polling, marginal seat polling. We don't usually get to see any of that. Sometimes it's leaked or someone gets a hold of it and we get a bit of an idea um, or we can tell because that's where the leader keeps going back and back to what their internal polling is showing. And I think that's going to be an issue here very much this time around because it is so tight. You know, the, the, the seats that need to change hands are really very few. Therefore, you know, there'll be very targeted campaigning to certain seats and it's the polling in certain seats that um, rather than the national polling that will tell the story. It certainly will. Oh, what a couple of months we're going to have. Everyone, the democracy <laughs> sausages so for everyone. I kind of am, actually. Oh, um, no, I, do, I, I just like that people get, get a choice every couple of years to decide who their government should be. All right, send your questions in because we love getting them. You can tweet using the hashtag The Party Room or email your questions to thepartyroom at abc.net.au. And remember to follow The Party Room on the ABC Listen app or your favourite podcast app. That's it for The Party Room this week. See you, PK. See you, Fran. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.